Yeah, let's get started. Um, all the the cool people are here, so we're going to rock and roll. This class kind of reminds me of, uh, let's see, kind of reminds me of days back at Linden Street where we'd start with like three people and then have 25 by about 10, 15 minutes into the class. But uh, we know who all the people are that really love the Lord. So you guys are here. Hey, so let's go ahead and pray. And uh, we've got some fun stuff to look at. We're going to do a little bit of uh, catch up from last week. And then we're going to do half of chapter 7 today in Second Samuel. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us every day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Um, is the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, just the the wonder that here David comes to you wanting to do something for you, and you say, no, I'm going to do something for you. And how often that is the case, that we just see uh, you are the one that acts on our behalf. You are the one that saves. You're the one that's obsessed um, with our safety and salvation. And we pray, Father, that you would just uh, encourage us this morning, strengthen us in your word, both now and also as Carlos, Pastor Carlos preaches later, we pray for Bill and the finance class. We pray for all those that are are teaching our children that you'd fill them with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's do a little bit of, uh, gonna, I want to hit a couple issues before we get into 2 Samuel 7. Anybody see the video that I sent out this week? I emailed like around Monday. Did anybody look at it or did I waste a lot of time? Uh, it had to do with the nine periods of Old Testament history. So I sent a link out through CCC. Anyway, go and look at it. I'm going to do a little review here. It just hit me that last week I, I asked you guys a question about the nine periods of Old Testament history. And I got a bunch of blank stares. So in a real quick overview, I'm going to teach you the nine periods of Old Testament history so that we can make sure that we understand where <coughs> we are as we talk about Second Samuel and so on. Um, let's see, I don't think this has a little pointer. It doesn't. So if you look on the left there, you've got beginnings. It does? Yeah. Oh, well. Um, you've got patriarchal period. And then you've got the Exodus, you've got the conquest, judges. We're just after the judges. You know, we're moving into what we call the United Kingdom. So this is the period where David unites the kingdom underneath his reign, Solomon. Then you've got the divided kingdom period where there's a civil war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, uh, if you guys remember that. And then we have Israel being taken into captivity. Um, we have 722, the northern tribes are taken in, taken away by Assyria. Down below, we have Babylon destroying Jerusalem, 586. Then you have the post-exilic period. This is their return back to the land and then the end of the Old Testament. So what I want to do is is just real quick, um, and you guys can see this on the video. I'll resend it. There's a just a little memory device I use with some of our, I've used with our students in the past. On memory, You can use this to memorize like the Ten Commandments or any list, really. If once you know the memory device, you can just attach pictures to any list that you have. So I just think of one bun. I put a hamburger bun in my mind, two shoe. I'm thinking of a big boot that we're going to put somebody in. 
three tree, just any kind of tree, put it in your mind. One bun, two shoe, three tree, four door. You're going to think of a door when you think of the number four. Five hive, this is like a beehive. Try to think of a hive. Um, six sticks. So I think of drumsticks, and in this case, it's going to be two drumsticks. Seven heaven, I think of a cloud. That's not theologically correct, but think of a cloud to think of heaven. Eight gate, it could be any gate. Nine dime, I think of an American dime. And you could, if you were going to do the Ten Commandments or some other list, you could do ten hen. <clears throat> so we just use these. Um, so so back here, if I, if I say one, what's the image that comes to your mind? Bun, good. If I say two, shoe, good. Three, tree. Four, door. Five, hive. Six, sticks. Seven, heaven. Eight, gate. Nine, dime. It's not a. It's a half rhyme, but you know it works. Nine dime. Okay, so those are the images. Now, years ago, my wife. I don't take any credit for these drawings, but my wife drew up one bun just real quick she's a she did this like in 10 minutes um it's better than it would have taken me five hours to come up with anything similar so one bun what you have here is in my mind i'm thinking of a hamburger bun the sesame seeds are organized into sun moon and stars which reminds me of beginnings creation everything that comes with creation adam and eve even uh abel and cain all the way up through chapter 11 with the tower of babel Right, flood, power, babble. That's the first period of Israel's history is beginnings. Two shoe is the patriarchal period. If you didn't know, this is Abraham in a shoe. So you just visualize a patriarch inside of a shoe. That's the patriarchal period. Three tree. This is you may not be able to see this, but that's an exit sign on the side of that tree. Exit should remind us of the Exodus period. Israel coming out of Egypt wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they take the land. So three tree is Exodus. Think of an exit sign on the side of that tree Four door. I'm thinking of a door with the walls all around the door broken down. So this reminds me of like the conquest. So, so like uh, Jericho, all the walls came down and all the conquest that happens after Jericho. That's the conquest five hive. So you think of a beehive, this is a judge very unwisely hitting a hive. And so we think of the period of the judges, right? So this was not a time of wisdom. This is a time when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Five hive equals judges. Six sticks, this is King David in my mind. And he is holding two drumsticks ready to rock out. And he's got two sticks united in one hand. So this is the united kingdom, two sticks together. Is that cool? Two sticks together, that's the United Kingdom. Divided Kingdom, this is a crown on top of a cloud. So seven heaven, a divided crown. The divided kingdom is that period after Solomon when his children, there's this civil war between the northern and southern tribes, remember? Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then it all leads from that point on, you see these two sets of kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. So you have this whole period of divided kingdom. And then there's these warnings and stuff. So you get to eight gate. Israel nor Judah listen to the warnings and you get to the period of the exile. This is a poor Hebrew that is chained to a gate. He's being taken off into exile. Uh, Assyria in 722, 586 Babylon. Does that make sense? 
So that's the eight gate, the exile period. After 70 years, you have this return. <clears throat> we have, remember Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. You have this return. This is some dime guy that's coming down from Persia across here, the, uh, the sea and the, uh, what do we call it, the Jordan. Yeah, back into Israel. This is the post-exilic period. So post-exilic period. The dime guy, the dime Hebrew guy comes back down. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and so on and so forth. All right, so if I were to quiz you guys and say, let's, uh, let's start with one. What's the image that don't tell me the period yet. Just tell me the image that comes to mind. The double double. Yeah. So we got one bun animal style. style. That sounds good. What is the period of Israel's history? Beginnings. Okay. Feel free to shout it out. Okay. It's okay to shout out after. So, so we got one bun. Um, let's go down to this slide right here. Okay, so when you think of two, what's the image that should come to mind? Shoe. Okay, and so there's this patriarch. So this is called the patriarchal period. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So there's Abraham and the shoe. Okay, so three, what period comes to mind? Three tree? Exodus. So this is the period of the Exodus. Four, what is the image that comes to mind? Four-door conquest. So coming in, taking Jericho. Five, what's the image that comes to mind? Hive. What is the period? Judges. So five-hive, this is the period of the judges. Six, what's the image? Sticks. Oops, sorry. What's the period? United Kingdom. So David's got two sticks in his hand. So this is David has united the kingdom. That's where we are as we're looking at Second Samuel. Seven... Heaven, what's the image? Divided crown, it's the period. Divided kingdom. Eight, gate, what's the period? Not post. The exile period. So this is a poor Hebrew that's been captured, taken up into captivity. You could say captivity, you could say exile. And then, whoops, sorry. And then nine... What's the image? Dime. The period of Israel's history. Post-exilic period. So yeah, so all of the books of the Old Testament, including where we're at right now, you can hang somewhere on that skeleton. And um, when I took, in seminary, I had studied the Bible for quite a while. And then in seminary, I took a Old Testament survey class where they just gave us the big grid of the old Testament and helped us see where each of the major and minor prophets fit. Suddenly it was like my eyes were open. I'm like, Oh, that's what Hosea is about. You know, I used to just drop down in the middle of Amos and be just reading and having no idea where Amos fit in the scheme of anything. Um, and so when you have that grid and then suddenly you read your little Bible intro and it says you, Amos is written to the Northern tribes before the, uh, you know, the fall of the northern tribes and captivity under Syria in 722 B.C. Now you have an idea of where this fits. Divided kingdom before the exile. All right, so let's um, 
let's do a little bit of review from some of the particulars from last week. Anything that stands out to you about David and Goliath? As we talked about David and Goliath last week. Say it again. Good. Brian remembers one of the main themes. It was God ultimately that takes out Goliath, right? Uses David, but he's the one that's in charge. Excelente. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, David comes running at Goliath. Yeah, he's like, I'm ready to get it on. Let's get busy. So you don't get this idea that he's juking and jiving and wondering what's going to happen. Yeah, Justice. Yeah, how many stones did it take? Just one stone. Yeah, so one stone hits him in the forehead, grabs the sword, cuts his head off, game over. So this isn't like some, you know, 60-minute football game, you know, four quarters. Um, let's see. Who's the first person in the narrative to bring up God? David. Yeah, there's a lot of information that happens. The first guy that really brings up the Lord is David. In fact, those are the first words that we see of David on the pages of Scripture. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to mock the armies of the living God? Right. <clears throat> and so he's very concerned about the glory of God. Um, from our study last week, from what we suggested, is David just kind of like this little guy that Saul's armor doesn't quite fit him? No, it doesn't seem so. What would be some evidence that David actually is probably a fairly substantial individual? Yeah, Justice. Yeah, this is a guy that killed bears and tigers. Took them on, grabbed one by the head, slammed. So good. What what else might be an indication that David's probably a he's definitely a a young man, but what would indicate that he's probably pretty pretty good shape? Yeah, Dan. Oh, good. Right. So, yeah, even when he's being hired, Dan says, as a as a harpist, he's already being described as a valiant warrior. So he's already got some experience. Yeah, Ron. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So would Saul really say, hey, try this on if David was just a little tiny guy? Um, probably not. Saul must have sized up David and said, hey, I think you might be able to use this. But David ends up not wearing the armor, not because it's so big for him, but because it's just, he says the word is untested, which probably means I just, I don't have the experience with this set of armor. I don't know if those of you guys that play sports or whatever, you know, you get used to a particular piece of equipment, maybe a catcher's glove and, and somebody gives you another catcher's glove and you're just kind of like, ah, this doesn't fit. I don't really like the feel of this. Might be a five hundred dollar catcher's glove, but if if you're not used to it, then you're gonna go with something else. 
Okay, good. Um, let's see, what else? Did Saul know David prior to Goliath's death? This is something that we didn't have time to get into last week. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. I don't know if you guys remember kind of the issue here. Okay, so starting at verse 55. So David's already won the battle, and then the Philistines take off and all that. In verse 55, when Saul saw David going against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Or the, I always mispronounce that, Bethlehemite. There we go. Um, so it's been raised. The question's been raised. I thought we, I thought David was already in Saul's court playing music for him. Remember the, evil spirit would come upon Saul. David would play a harp and then would, the evil spirit would leave him. So what's going on here with Saul saying, hey, who's, whose uh, son is that? Or who's, who's, who's his father? And some people have tried to say, well, this is just another example of a contradiction in scripture. What do you guys think? He's confused. Yeah, actually, that's one possible answer. The critics, they always want to jump to contradiction, right? Hey, look like Saul knew David back in previous chapters. Now it seems like he doesn't know David. This is a clear contradiction in the Bible. No, one possibility, we already know that Saul's having mental problems. And so one possibility is he's... Um, aware he's been aware of david maybe even david's name and father but then out there in the field of battle he's having one of his evil spirit lapses and being like who is this guy um so that's a possibility we already know he's having trouble um yeah joe Right, right. That's actually one explanation as well. Some commentators will say the spirit of this is Saul saying, yeah, I knew this guy was a harpist, but who is this guy out here in the field? This is a completely different guy than I've seen. Um, my, there's several different possibilities. In fact, I sent you guys a link to an article two weeks ago. Uh, my preferred explanation is we sometimes think that Saul is a king of some like little tiny country that has very little administration to it. In reality, this is a fairly large operation. And David is probably just one of several musicians and one of several armor bearers that was actually kind of a title of uh, kind of a honorific type of title. <clears throat> So at some point, you know, that David came and actually was playing harp for David, but there's no guarantee that Saul 
is paying attention to any mus- every musician that comes in to play for him or people that are bringing him his food. At some point, he would have said, yes, go inquire of this young man's father. I want him in my court. But how many other dozens or other people that were in his court did he also have to you know, ask, tell, tell their parents that, hey, your son's going to be in my court now? Um, and so I think it's just very likely that Saul's out on the field of battle, you know, perhaps maybe recognizes David. But then once he goes and cuts off the head of J- Goliath, he's like, man, who is this guy? And by the way, he had promised that whoever did this, he was going to give his daughter to him and he was going to make his family free. And the idea is probably free of taxation. So he's inquiring. The specific inquiry is whose son is this man? So he's not necessarily asking who is this guy, David. He probably there's a likely it's likely that he would remember. Oh, yeah, that's my heart player. And we just been talking. But whose son is he? I don't remember. And um, and so I think when you when you start with the presupposition of synthesis rather than presupposition of contradiction, there's many times very logical explanations. Um, And it's not like this has been something that's been unnoticed, you know, for gosh, two twenty eight hundred years. This text has been around for a long, long time. Anna, any any thoughts that you guys have on that? Yeah, Joe. Oh yeah. It, that's very possible. We know that there's examples of that in the ancient Near East of servants coming into the king's quarters and being just sequestered behind some curtain or what whatnot. In fact, in some instances, people weren't allowed to come look upon the face of the king. Um, only certain individuals were allowed to look upon his face, um, <clears throat> you know, depending on the on the country. Um, so, yeah. So I, I just want to encourage you guys, and I, I try to write, remind some of our younger students as well, that um, there's a rich tradition of synthesis in the Bible, of what we call harmonization. And when you see things in the Bible that seem to, you're, you're wondering, man, what is, what's going on here? Um, if you just do a little bit of research, you're going to find, you know, people have been writing about this stuff for a long time. You're not the first one to come upon these questions. And uh, there's lots of good material out there. Um, so uh, if you go back from a couple weeks, there's, I sent you guys a link that the whole article is just about this one issue. Did Saul know David before he killed Goliath? Um you know what? Let's go ahead. We're going to skip forward now and just jump into Second Samuel. Let's turn to Second Samuel. <clears throat> what we're going to do is we're going to cover the first half, the part that we would call the Davidic covenant proper. We're going to look at the first 17 verses. We're going to save the rest of the chapter for next week. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the text and then we're going to go back and start <clears throat> kind of expositing and making some 
deductions from this text. So let's start in verse 1, 2 Samuel 7. Actually, let me, I just lied to you. Let me preface what's happened up to this point. So the last we left David, he had just killed Goliath. And now David wants him to, you know, he's, he's recognizing him and um, in a special way. But almost immediately, Saul begins to have these jealousies towards David. God is blessing David when he goes into battle. Uh, you start hearing these songs around Israel, right? David has killed his thousands. No, no, David has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And there seems to be, it's, it was, I think it was like a top, top ten hit there in Israel. People are really getting down to it. And Saul is very aware of this song, and it doesn't make him very happy. And so as things begin to develop, plus Jonathan, they become best friends. Saul wants the kingdom to go to whom? Jonathan. Jonathan is recognizing the spirit of the Lord has come upon David. And Jonathan wants is just understanding that David is going to be the king at some point. So you have all of this kind of chase around the desert for a while. David hiding in caves. Some interesting scenes where Saul goes to relieve himself and David cuts off a part of his robe, doesn't kill him. There's a couple different times where David could have killed him, takes his spear and his jug in the, in the middle of the army at the middle of the night, doesn't kill him, says, Hey, Saul, just wanted to let you know, I didn't kill you. I could have, but I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. And then Saul in his craziness seems to be like, Oh, David, my son, you know, thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm going to depart now. And then it seems like, you know, just a little while later, he's, after him again then there's the whole even before that you know trying to pin david against the wall with a spear seems like every time you turn the page david's sitting in his chair with a spear again and um so you've got all that going on uh then there's kind of like uh what you know kind of the mad uh david gets in trouble and feigns madness do you guys remember that chapter it's a very interesting scene where he's he's pretty sure that They've got his number, and he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And so he just pretends like he's mad, starts slobbering all over himself. And then the king says, who is this guy? Let him go. That's a very interesting tactic, by the way. If you're ever getting bullied, you should share that with your students. <clears throat> if, if they're getting bullied at school, just feign madness. Maybe they'll leave you alone. Um, let me see what else. Uh, David going to the Witch of Endor. That's pretty in oh yeah i'm sorry saul going to the witch of endor that's some pretty interesting stuff i think shakespeare picked that up from macbeth um and so that's that's crazy material and eventually so the prophecy is that saul and jonathan are both going to die they do die and but does david automatically just get the kingdom over all of israel does it just fall into his lap right away no, in fact, what happens is Abner goes and he establishes Abimosheth, Ishbosheth. There you go. Ishbosheth now becomes the king of Israel in the north. David's the king of Judah. It takes a couple years before everything kind of settles and there's all this kind of little infighting, Joab and Abner, and some pretty gross kind of bloodshed and things like that. Uh, but eventually, um, David uh, is able to secure the kingdom. Is he has peace? Enemies are at peace, 
And so you get to chapter 7 finally. And David's out on the roof with his prophet. This is really the first time that we see Nathan. They're kind of, as it were, kind of cracking open a Coca-Cola on the top of the roof. And he's looking over at his prophet and says, life is good. Life is good. What shall I do? And so that's where we pick up. So let's start. Let's start in verse one. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Notice that, move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people in Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall um, be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, I think in this particular text, we see a number of different attributes of God <clears throat> that rise to the surface. There's a lot of theology here that we could get into, uh, but I want to focus on basically four attributes of God that rise out of this text. And the first one is Yahweh's wisdom in verses one to five. Yahweh's wisdom. Let me read that text again. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the that the king said to Nathan the prophet see now i dwelt in a house of cedar but the ark of god dwells inside tent curtains here i am in my nice palace and there the ark is out there in a camping tent so to speak really out there in the the tabernacle right um, this bothers David. David feels like something's wrong. 
Why, why am I living the good life? And yet where the Lord chooses to manifest his special presence on earth, the one place, it's in this lowly tent area. And so the suggestion is never really stated, but Nathan knows exactly what he's suggesting. suggesting. And so he just says, do all that's in your heart. He says, David, just do it. And what David is suggesting, it's noble, it's rational, it's right. Um, it's as obvious as serving pancakes at a pancake breakfast, right? Just seems like there doesn't seem to be any reason to inquire of the Lord. This is logical. This is reasonable. Um, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. Look at verse four. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my, ser- uh, my, my servant, Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? And so when revelation steps in, revelation rejects reason. And we've seen this before, haven't we? When God told Samuel to go pick the new king, Samuel walks in, Eliab, this strapping man comes in and Samuel just assumes this must be the guy. But not only is he not the guy and six other sons come by, but nobody's the guy, and so they have to go out and get the shepherd boy to come in before God says, this is the guy. And that's just the way the Lord, it seems like so often he works, is we think it's just logical that we should do this. And yet many times, once revelation enters into the situation, it's God turns logic on its head. So David and Nathan conspire a good plan. It's a godly plan for Yahweh's honor. And yet, in this case, Yahweh will have none of it. And this, I think this teaches us a, at least one main lesson right here out the gate. And that is that the kingdom is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands may be. Um, and it should protect us. We should be very careful about deifying our Christian heroes. You know, we love Cornerstone. We love Pastor Milton, his preaching, Gospel Primer. We have to remember, this is a man. And we make mistakes. And ultimately, we we need to constantly cry out to the Lord for wisdom. He's a God who will grant us wisdom as we cry out for it. Uh, I love John MacArthur. I love John Piper. I love R.C. Sproul. But you know what? These are human beings. Look how many um, really godly people were on completely different sides during this last election. There are people that have a ton of respect for that were writing articles basically saying, if you vote for Donald Trump, I question your Christianity. And then I had there were other really godly people on the other side that were saying, if you don't vote for Donald Trump, I question your Christianity. Um, It's like, who's right? And, you know, these guys weren't getting direct divine revelation. You know, right now, Russell Moore, who I have a ton of respect for, he's one of my heroes. But he's going around apologizing to people for calling their faith into question based upon who they voted for in this last election. And the Southern Baptist denomination is losing money right now. And they think it's because of Russell Moore's statements um, that people people didn't take exception to the fact that Russell Moore said, I don't I'm not voting for Donald Trump. They took exception to Russell Moore saying, I question your Christianity if you vote for Donald Trump. They said in what previous election have people said I don't know. I question your faith in Christ if you vote for a particular candidate. 
And so now Southern Baptists are voting with their money and they're not sending in as much money to the denomination. And so the denomination's worried. And Russell Moore, I think to his credit, he's humbling himself and he's going around apologizing and saying, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I should have not made people's faith kind of co-equal with who they voted for in this last election. And all that to say that we, we just need to realize that when, <clears throat> as godly as our Christian heroes are and as, as much as we do want to look to teachers to help guide us, we need to make sure that we don't deify them. And here, both David and Nathan, probably the two highest representatives on planet Earth at this period in redemptive history, said, yes, it is a good plan. Just do it. And yet God enters in and says, nope, this isn't what we're going to do. Let's look at the next characteristic. So that's Yahweh's wisdom. It's, it's Yahweh's wisdom we need to depend upon above our own wisdom. But the second attribute is Yahweh's humility. And this is surprising. Yahweh's humility, verses 6 and 7. Let me read that part of the text again. Uh, God says, For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken of a word, a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is just kind of an amazing thing. And we know that eventually Solomon is going to be commissioned to build a temple. But God is basically saying, I'm the one that is just willing to travel around in a tent with my people. Wherever they pilgrimaged, I pilgrimaged with them. Um, this is a God who condescends to his people. He travels with them through their ups and downs. In fact, when we get the New Testament, we're going to see that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us using that same term, although they're in Greek. But Christ became flesh and tabernacled among us. I mean, just think, you know, Jesus Christ came and humbled himself as a baby who was dependent upon his mother and he walks around the earth and he eventually dies. And so this is a God that is very willing to humble himself and to be uh, with his people. It reminds me of a story of uh, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, Sam Rayburn. He was the longest standing Speaker of the House in in, uh, U.S. history. He was Speaker of the House under FDR and JFK. Um, There's certain points where he had breaks in there, but whenever the Democrats were in charge, he was the Speaker of the House. And this Sam Rayburn, he heard about one of the, no-name reporters that hardly anybody knew about, uh, but that covered the Washington, D.C. scene. This reporter's teenage daughter died suddenly, tragically, of an illness. And um, in the morning, the reporter hears this doorbell ring, goes, opens up the door, and there's Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn says, I just wanted to give you our condolences, see if there's anything we can do. And he's just stunned. He's just like, I don't know. We're just making arrangements. And so the speaker said, well, have you uh, made your coffee this morning? He said, well, no, we really haven't had time. And so he just barges in and says, well, I can do that. So he goes in goes in the kitchen. He's rubbing it around in the kitchen, and he's making coffee. And uh, suddenly the reporter realizes, he says, Mr. Speaker, aren't you supposed to be with the president for breakfast? To which he said, yeah, I called him and uh, canceled that meeting. I said I had an, a friend that was in dire need I needed to go help this friend this morning 
So here's like the second most powerful man in the United States who's willing to humble himself and go just spend time with a lowly reporter to make him some coffee. And that just pales in comparison really to the glimpse of God coming and just covenanting with us, traveling around in a tent, Jesus Christ coming and tabernacling in a human body. He's not ashamed to humble himself. <clears throat> kind of reminds us of, uh, you know, I think over there in, a, in a Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Uh, it's just an amazing thing to think of God expressing humility, you know, the God of the universe. Um, yeah, that he dies on the cross, that he comes and he's willing to pilgrimage with his people in the Old Testament to tabernacle with us, that through the Holy Spirit that the Lord wants to, he wants to be with us. He wants to manifest his presence even this morning. Um uh, we may be forced to revise our theology if we think that deity and humility are mutually exclusive categories. Um, but if we pay close attention to what God's doing in the Old and New Testament, this is a God that's willing to humble himself. So I think that's a second attribute that we can draw. Thirdly, so so we see God's humility in tabernacling amongst his people, his wisdom in in revealing things that seem contradictory to David and Nathan, but God, when God steps on the scene, he reveals his will. But thirdly, we see Yahweh's grace, and this is a big deal in this text. Um, notice in verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then he's going to review his past grace and then his present grace before he leads up to this big aha moment. He says, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, uh, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. That's past grace. Then he says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. It's kind of, what are you talking about, Lord? I'm talking about building your house. Now you're talking about Israel. So God's leading up to something. Here's what I've done for you, but it's for the sake of this bigger plan for my people. I want something lasting for my people. And so then here comes the big moment. And the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David says, I want to make you a house. God comes back and says, no, no, no. I'm going to make you a house. Um, there seems to be a preoccupation in the mind of God with the Davidic dynasty for the sake of Israel, for the sake of God's people way into the future, even beyond Israel. You know what David's proposing to do here is something that was not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern world. It, it was very common for a king to basically come to a deity, and this would be in their writings, and say, hey, um, deity like Amenhotep would come to Amon-Re. So Amenhotep III in around the 400 B.C., 
comes to Amon Re and says, hey, look at all these buildings that I've built up for you. Now, what are you going to give me? And Amon Re in their writings responds with gratitude to Amenhotep and promises to subject his enemies. And there's all kinds of examples of this in ancient Near Eastern texts. Basically, it goes like this. The king builds something, comes to the god and says, hey, look what I've done for you. Uh, What are you going to do for me? The god comes and says, well, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. I'm going to make your kingdom last a very long time. So David comes to the Lord and says, Lord, I want to build you a temple. I want to build a house for you. God, in complete contradiction to what is in the ancient Near Eastern texts, says, no, it's not going to go that way. It's not like, hey, you do something for me. I'll do something for you. I'm going to do completely for you. I'm giving you rest from your enemies. I'm looking out for my people, Israel, for my own namesake, and I'm going to build you a house. And this house is going to go on, by the way, forever. It's going to go way beyond even your lifetime. Um, so this is not, I will build, I built you a temple. So now you owe me peace and long reign. God gives grace. And this is no little trifle of theology. If if you know anything about world religions, if you study the various religions of the world, just about every religion has kind of like this ancient Near Eastern idea of you do something for the deity and then the deity does something for you. You do this for God and then God is obligated to do something for you. That's basically world religions 101. But Christianity is completely unique in that sense. That the Bible comes along and says, no, you can't do anything for me, but I will do for you. In fact, one of the themes of the Old Testament is just how the Israel just seems to blow it over and over and over again whenever they're trying to earn their way towards God. And God has to come along and and rescue them time and time again. And then in this text, we just see it again that God is saying, no, I'm going to do for you. Isn't that what we see Jesus say in John 14? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we see this God who's obsessed with the safety of his people. Safety is just another word for salvation of his people. It's like God says, I'm going to build a house for you and my people are going to be brought back and they will have rest from their enemies. No more will anybody oppress them. It's like God is just obsessed with this safety issue. Now, we know that David's going to have a son and Solomon's going to have some sons. There's going to be civil war and then there's going to be this captivity thing in the exile, right? But then there's going to be the post-exilic period. There's going to be some time of peace. But then we know that the Persians are going to come in. And we got the Romans, the Greeks, the Romans. And so this is looking far into the future. We've got David's kingdom. But God seems to be looking way down the line. And, we, and, and as we compare Scripture with Scripture, as you guys probably did this week, you see that Christ is the initial fulfillment, him coming, dying on the cross, But even we're looking forward to a second advent when he comes and finally gives peace from all uh, of the enemies. And so we see just God's grace being put on display. Jesus says, no, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. 
and then I'm going to bring you to be where I am. Um, we see in with the disciples. And it seems like the ultimate fulfillment <clears throat> is that Christ comes back, sets up a kingdom in the thousand year millennium, and there's peace on the earth for a thousand years. And then there's the final judgment and Jesus moves on into eternity where all of God's people rejoice and praise God forever and ever and ever at total peace with their, uh, there's no more enemies, no more oppressors. God has accomplished and he has built this house for David and for all of his, all of his people. So that's God's wisdom, um, God's humility, God's grace. And then finally, what we want to look at is God's constancy or his faithfulness. God's constancy. Look at verse uh, 12. We'll finish with this point. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you and you will who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me, my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we see that this house or this dynasty or this kingdom that God's going to establish cannot be annulled by David's death. This is God's faithfulness. Even though David dies, it will not end God's promise. And so God says, your son's going to come. And yeah, he will build a temple, a physical temple on the earth. But his house will be established forever. So we see that there must be something going it's very typical of prophecy. A lot of times prophecy, you have this near fulfillment, and then you have this far fulfillment. We know Solomon died. So there's something going on well beyond for this kingdom to go forever. So death cannot annul God's promise, but neither can sin annul God's promise. Look at verse 14. I will be his father, that is David, David's son, which we know later will be Solomon. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So death can't annul the kingdom. Sin can't annul the kingdom. We're going to see that in David's line. There's lots of crazy ups and downs and so on. And while there may be people who move away, the God's general promise to build a house for David and for his people cannot be annulled. Second, and then thirdly, time cannot uh, exhaust God's promise. He says in verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. The idea seems to be is that Yahweh's kingdom is unstoppable. You've just got this unstoppable movement through history that while we're going to see different things happen, God just keeps moving forward with this kingdom idea. Death, sin, time cannot stop it. Reminds me of a story about uh, a Scottish pastor. And if you know anything about Scottish culture, this illustration will make sense. Anybody ever see that John Wayne movie? Uh, what's it? The Quiet Man? Anybody seen The Quiet Man? So you know a little bit about like Scott's liking to fight and wrestle and so on. Oh, that's oh, was it in Ireland? Okay, okay, I got it wrong. But I think the Scots kind of still like to fight and wrestle and stuff too, don't they? I don't know. Oh, really? Okay, well, forget what I just said about the Quiet Man then. But this is this is what this pastor did. So. Um, 
you've got this pastor named uh, Aeneas Sage in the 1700s. And on one particular Sunday, and by the way, he was a really big strapping individual. On one particular Sunday, he had said that we're going to have catechism at this particular house. And it was the home of a large landowner who was known for being a very evil man in the village. So he just says, we're going to do catechism over here at so-and-so's house. Everybody's all, man, how's he going to do that? And so uh, he shows up and, um, and knocks on the door. The landowner opens. He says, I've come to discharge my duty to God, your conscience, and to my own. And the landowner said, I care nothing for any of the three out of my house or I'll turn you out. To which the pastor responded, if you can. There followed a sort of catechism preparatory meeting with the landowner, who was also a very powerful man. Yet when the interchange was over, uh, the pastor or the uh, the landowner was lying on the floor with a rope around his hands and feet. Then the landowner who <clears throat> was bound over to keep the peace uh, as Mr. Sage put it, the minister called the people of the town and taught them the shorter catechism. No one, of course, refusing. And so, you know, here's this big strapping pastor gets in a big wrestling match, ties the guy up and does catechism in his house. By the way, that guy got saved later on. So that's part of what makes that story. But you just get this idea that, you know, from on the pages of Scripture that God's kingdom is just unstoppable. There's just not really the devil can rise up and he does his little thing for a while. The flesh sins moving. You see different periods of history where it's just like, man, what's going to happen? You know, when we go through church history, remember the 10 periods of persecution under Rome? In each period, the church is kind of like, this is the end. And then you get after the 10th, one of the most worst persecutions underneath Diocletian. You're just thinking, oh, man, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, the Lord raises up Constantine. And now not only is Christianity legal, it becomes the dominant religion within just a few uh, few years. You're just like, what? This happened. It was so overwhelming that Augustine is starting to think that, oh, this is the millennium. <laughs> you know, we must be in the in the kingdom. It was so radical uh, in 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 change. And so we see God's faithfulness. He's made this promise to David here in Second Samuel seven. He says, "I'm going to build you a house. This kingdom will go on forever. Death, sin, time cannot stop it." Jesus Christ will establish it. His name will be exalted. I will put all of his enemies under his feet. God promises in 1 Corinthians 15. Then Jesus will turn around and give the kingdom back to God the Father, that God may be all in all. And you just get, you just look at Revelation and, you know, God is not, he's not like wringing his hands. He's not sweating, wondering how it's all going to turn out. You, know, you watch the basketball games last night or any, any of the, anybody watching any of the basketball, you're just kind of, oh, what's going to happen? Is Gonzaga going to win or North Carolina? God, it's not like that with the kingdom of God. There's not like, oh, you know, we're in extra innings. Maybe the devil's going to win. No, it's unstoppable. And God promises this. And so we see his faithfulness. So we see, you know, in this text, I, I think we see some wonderful reminders of God's wisdom above the wisdom of man. We see our God is humble, that he's willing to humble himself as a man. <clears throat> you know, we see God's grace all over this text. 
um, the grace of David in the past, the grace in the future. And then we see just God's faithfulness that this is a, th- there's something going on here that goes way beyond me and you. You know, if, if, if you think that somehow some failings or bad decisions on your part are somehow going to crumble the kingdom of God, you and I are thinking too much of ourselves. Um, he is the main player in the movie. We're bit players, right? And we get, we get to play a role, and it's a wonderful role. But our little bit part is not going to crumble his kingdom if we stumble here and there uh, in this life. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, Dan just says you just see this continuous line that starts right there in Genesis three with the seed of the woman. Uh, and, you know, just the promise, you know, God says the day you eat of the, the fruit, you'll surely die. But then God brings an animal, kills the animal, puts skins on Adam and Eve. And then he's just moving on from there. So, yeah, all the way to Jesus Christ. So a lot to praise the Lord for. Um, let's go ahead and go to prayer. I'll be up here for questions. It is 10 o'clock, so I want to try to be faithful to get done more on time. Otherwise, you can start singing hymns at 10 o'clock. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your goodness and kindness to us. Just your wisdom that we see in this text. Uh, just the surprising humility. Um, just the grace that we've grown to know and experience and love that we see expressed here towards David. Your obsession to to see your people saved and safe. And just the promise, the unstoppableness of your kingdom, that you're the one who has begun this good work. You will complete it, and and we're along for the ride. And so we just thank you, Lord, to just be able to watch you work. We ask that you just um, bless us this morning as we see the next step, at least in this particular local body, as your word is preached as um, your spirit moves amongst us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.